Who the Wild Things Are with Ryan McGuire. You gotta listen to your body. Oh my God, maybe, you know, I could get out there. I could do this. Let's take a ride. Find your wild side. Real stories. See with your own eyes. It's so beautiful. I'm gonna have the best time out here. See, I was in tears. I was just like, that's the best, man. just want to say uh, welcome to episode one of Who the Wild Things Are. Um, it's gonna be a show where we show you guys just some people that did it different, people that continue to do it different uh, today. Got my man Donnie the Don online with me. Pumped to have you here, man. Um, I'm turning priority into passion and passion and priority, so uh, pumped to have you, man. Appreciate it. No, thanks for having me on here. It's uh, it's, it's exciting to be the, the first one, so hopefully <laughs> we can make it work. I have no idea, you know how we'll all hold it up, but it's going to be awesome, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, dude. So just uh, let, let's kind of start at square one. So I think a lot of people know who you are. People know about you, but maybe they don't know the background story before Donnie became what he is today. So let's just get into it. Where, where did you start out with primitive skills? How did you get interested in ancestral learning and, and the yeah. whole lifestyle? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, um, kind of the, the, the micro and the macro version of this is, uh, you know, much like uh, probably many people that are watching, I was just always an outdoors lover. Um, as a kid, as a young adult, just always outside, kind of exploring the world. And um, how I kind of transitioned into more of a, a focus into ancestral skills really came about 11, 12 years ago. Um, I just got tired of all of the, the stuff, all of the backpacks and sleeping bags, um, the, the stoves, the pots. And I, and I get it, you know, if you're going skiing, it requires a certain set of gear. If you go mountaineering, different set of gear. But for me and just my adventure outside, um, I just, I wanted to kind of start at square one for the most part. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I was living out in uh, Joshua Tree, California, and I just got rid of everything that I owned as far as backpacks and all that sort of high dollar, uh, you know, items, gave it to a bunch of, um, you know, homeless guys living on the street. So they're sleeping in some nice couple hundred dollars worth of sleeping bags, sleeping good. But, um, yeah. And I just started from square one and it really started with stone tools. Um, I kind of knew that's was kind of our first creative inventions, if you will. So I wanted to focus on what I consider to be the first skill. And the first skill was really crafting stone into a variety of tools that would allow you to, you know, hunt game, tan hides, build shelters, the whole gambit of stuff, if you will. So I just wanted to start at square one. I took a, uh, an archaeology class in the local community college. And the lady that was the professor, she brought in a couple of Clovis points and some, uh, some spearhead. Nice. Uh, yeah, passed them around. And I just kind of fell in love. And then... Uh, she put me in the contact with a guy that made them and uh, he made me a small set and I worked until there was nothing left. Yeah. So now it's just kind of that, that unique time right there where, you know, getting my hands on some, you know, like some stone blades and stone knives really just kind of opened me up to a whole new gateway. Now, now prior to this, there was a lot of discovery and kind of learning in some of the ancestral skills, but it was kind of like, I never felt, never felt right. I didn't, um, you know, I didn't feel like I was going about it the right way. So for me, it was just really starting at square one, and it has to do with all of those 
stone tools that we know of, whether it's axes or choppers or, you know, knives or discoidal flakes. Um, that was my, uh, my pathway. And then from there on, my first skill of stone skills just really allowed me to, to focus and drill down on a lot of other skills. And it's just been, uh, it's been nonstop ever since. Yeah, that's epic, man. I love the approach you took where it was, it was started square one in terms of like human evolution, because I think a lot of people's approach to primitive skills now, it starts with a, a trip and then you try to retract gear, right? So that's the evolution. The evolution is to get rid of as much stuff as you can, where you just said, I'm going to start with nothing and I'm going to learn how to make all that stuff. So I think it's a really cool approach to, to a problem that I know a lot of us, especially myself, have, have encountered is being out there and just like, why do I have all of these things with me? What, what is all this for? And I definitely feel more fulfilled on ultralight trips than I do on backpacking trips. For sure. And I think, I think what it was for me is as I was spending time out there. So in my youth, you know, hiking all over the AT and kayaking and paddling and, you know, really at a very young age, I got into the survival world of like understanding, you know, what it is to kind of survive and thrive. And that were the, that's, that's a mixture of kind of um, first skills, primitive skills, as well as survival skills mixed in. But I was still kind of always teeter tottering between the two. And, um, I, I think it really came down to the points where I'd walk out in the middle of nowhere and I would just lug this huge backpack full of stuff. Yeah. And back here was the focus instead of everything else that was in front of me. And I felt that this just weighed me down mentally, physically, emotionally, and more importantly, primally. So yeah, it was just, it was time to get rid of it. And just, you know, I, I came to like some actualizations that everything I truly need can come from the environment. Yeah. But with the, knowledge, skills, and abilities. It wasn't just a, uh, you know, I can make a bow drill fire, I can do a hand drill fire, now I've got it. It's all three of those encompassed together, like builds in like a certain confidence. And that's where, you know, like yourself, you can throw on a waist wrap, go for a run with very minimal stuff. You know how to find springs, you can resource food. And more importantly, if you don't find food, you know you'll be okay because you've gone without it. You've experienced is, and I think for a lot of folks, that's that that fear factor they they kind of play on sometimes. Yeah, the the fear thing is a big one because it has to be it's kind of like a step equation. You can't just go out there the first time and tackle the biggest mission. Um, yep. So it's always it's always taking off little bites, and I, I like to call it leveling up. So sure. each time you go out on something that pushes your boundary a little bit further and you survive that, it's kind of another notch on your belt. So when you yep. go out and get in the next situation, you know, okay, well remember Donnie and I were in the woods and we ran 15 miles to the next water and we still made it fine. You, you get those little notches on your belt. Yeah, I like to call that, so you call it leveling up, I call it ground truth. And there's, yeah. there's, there's book truths, there's YouTube truths, there's all these different truths out there, but the ultimate truth is ground truth. And that's where you know exactly what it is and how it is. You feel full body when you're out in the bush and you have nothing or you're just trying to find a drink of water. That's the ground truth. Yeah. Yeah. I, I seek out. Yeah, dude, that's awesome. That's, that's a good one. I'm gonna have to steal that from your ground yeah. truth. Don't get mad at me if I steal that one. <laughs> mine is yours. What's mine? Is <laughs> no, I love that one. Yeah, dude, the, the ground truth is, uh, is super real. So, uh, let's talk about stuff, um, that, that you've been working on now. So applying that knowledge and, and spreading it, so 
you put out Scavenger, and I think yep. um, a lot of people really enjoyed that book, got a lot from it. I always hear really great reviews about it. Now, what are you working on from there? Uh, what's the next step? Yeah, so um, I wrote Scavenger, and the idea, you know, was that was kind of accounting a couple, you know, kind of life things and some things that I went through. But I got a lot of feedback on one of the chapters, which was called uh, Earth Roaming. And I, as I was getting all that feedback, it was the, the other book that I was writing. And that one really just kind of chronicles and goes into some of my specific methodologies and kind of best practices and applications into going for longer periods of times and kind of thriving in certain environments. And the idea is not necessarily you have to know these, you know, five plants and these types of shelters, but if you have kind of big picture creative processes you can really survive anywhere. And that's kind of really invoking our number one survival skill, which is creativity. So yeah, I wrote that book and, um, you know, I just, I keep writing books. I have uh, two books I'm, I'm working on right now. One of them is kind of going to be my big volume, if you will. It's several hundred pages already. And it's full of pictures and it's, it's a, uh, it's definitely a love of mine, but um, that one I think is going to allow people to kind of really grasp where I started. Now I said I started with just simple stone tools. Well, I'm taking all of that. I'm trying to, you know, highlight all of these tools that we have used throughout history and actually show people how to make them, how to use them, which is more important, and um, kind of how you can go about living with them, kind of maybe giving everybody else their own reset or an opportunity to say, huh, I might be able to do that. Let's go for it. So yeah, books are, you know, when wintertime hits aside from skiing or you know, just kind of exploring the uh, the mountains. I do a lot of writing. Yeah, it's a good time to do it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I think the uh, the title of your 800-page one's got to be Life is Long. <laughs> <laughs> life I is love long. that motto, though. That one always sticks out to me because so I see it on your post, Life is Long. Yeah. Uh, and it, so often, like Pop Culture, I've seen, you know, like, today can be the last day or YOLO or like these different, yeah. these different things. But the, the new perspective that, that you're bringing is life is long, like enjoy it. And I love that. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, I think people kind of forget that. I think they're always in a rush to do things and your life is long. And, you know, I'm 41 years old and I've lived all around the world and, you know, I, I've got kids and I've had all these great experiences it's just because my mindset, I'm going to continue doing those things. And, I don't need to rush to do them. They will unfold in front of me. I'll make some happen. Some will come by chance, but life is long. And if we just kind of accept that it is, and that's a good thing, you know, the possibilities are endless. Yeah. I love that. I love the, I like your perspective on survival in general, that it's not about ticking boxes, that there's a lot more creativity and, and resourcefulness to it uh, more so than studying and getting super caught up in finite details and like yeah. a, a bounded set of knowledge where yeah. the reality is there's there's so much out there that you, you couldn't learn it all in infinite lifetimes so it's about being creativity and starting to recognize patterns and using those to your advantage i love that you bring yeah. that to the table rather than just spoon feeding little pieces of information to people yeah you know it's i, I there, there's a balance to it and i just find that people are very receptive to you don't have to memorize these things what you can do is just experience them and through trial and error and through your own exposures in the outdoors, you'll quickly learn things that work and things that don't work. Yeah. Um, how my feels at this altitude or at this, you know, when I'm, you know, two days depleted of water. And 
you know, it, there doesn't, it, it doesn't have to be a systematic, you know, machine. It's about experiencing the outdoors and really just kind of living within it and breathing within it and uh, just going for the ride. Yeah, and you almost certainly learn twice as quick what doesn't work well. That's the uh, that, that's the funny one you encounter out there is oh, yeah. learn pretty quick. Whew. Too many times, but I think that's really, I mean, you've experienced it, I have, many people have. As soon as you pick up the wrong thing, you're like, that's not going to work. That's yeah. the big, <laughs> what was I thinking? I should have faced my shelter door this way so the wind wasn't coming in all night, you know? But that's the sort of, I mean, that's the best ground truth you can get right there is just, man, what was I thinking? And then you remember it, maybe you write it down. And, you know, that's kind of like some of my, my ideas and some of the books and even some of the articles I write is to give a little bit more ground truth to, uh, to some of the things that people maybe believe or they're kind of unfamiliar with or they're just unsure of is that ground truth perspective and just kind of breaking the, the molds. Like, I'm not, a, I'm not a planner. So the one thing I think that people should get away from is creating a plan when they go into the outdoors. Now, how I like to phrase this, and I write about this very uh, intensely in my book, but there's nothing wrong with letting someone know, hey, this is where I'm going. I'm gonna be in this range, I'm gonna be walking through these canyons, or I'm gonna be paddling this coastline. But when we come up with a plan, we miss out on so many things. So imagine walking down a trail and you see something, you hear something, you smell something, and your natural curiosity is to go there but the trails in front of you and that's the that's when we lose out on experiencing what that is over there and finding out a whole new cave system or a whole new high mountain lake or a giant patch full of berries so i try to avoid having too much of a plan and kind of just like whatever comes at me that's how i'm going to live it and that's where the you know life is long because that day could really be you know the most intense day of my life i won't know that but uh yeah just like a light plan is okay, a little structure, but nothing to, we gotta walk eight miles, we'll camp here, we'll do this, we'll do this. We gotta break that mold and say, just go for the enjoyment of it. Go and experience. I couldn't agree more. And, and the reality is when you get into, to especially like ultra light backcountry stuff, it, there's a saying, I think it may have been Dave Holiday. he said, it's not adventure, adventure until something goes wrong. And if you've been out there on those trips, man, you know, nothing is going to go to plan. Like maybe yeah. maybe 10 or 15%, but the rest is just you getting on with nature, having some push and pull, and ultimately having a kick-ass time, but it's not necessarily the time that in your mind you set out it was going to be. So a lot of times it's just kind of getting on the fly and, and having a good time with it. Yeah, I think, when, I think when people come across those problems, that's where they kind of get turned away from, you know, experiences or you know they kind of get turned away from um some of the outdoor stuff where it's like oh i went out there and i got caught in a snowstorm and it's like well yeah that's where some of those unique skills can come into play to say how do i kind of overcome these things or kind of live within it so yeah, yeah tell me about that one actually so me uh i've just been in colorado for a couple months now and i know that you've got your winter survival trip coming up <laughs> what uh if, if i was somebody on the fence and i'm like hey I might want to go to Donnie's thing, kind of scares me. What would you tell me? What's a what's a summary of Donnie's winter survival? Yeah, so my winter survival is kind of, it's it's twofold. Um, there are some core skills we're going to go over if somebody's out snowshoeing or they're backcountry skiing or they're out just adventuring and they get stuck. What do you do to keep yourself alive into that next day after 
so you can kind of push through that adversity. So my objective is to gently expose them to some of those adversities, maybe through cold, raising their body core temp, and then getting a little bit of a sweat and then figuring out how to regulate that. Um, so it's about really exposing people to a little bit of that discomfort, but showing them the necessary knowledge, skills, and abilities to overcome it and live through the night and you know, ultimately either lock themselves out or signal for help. I'm a huge fan of you know, case, case to case, but uh, like a self-rescue scenario, and that's kind of what I, I like to play in this. You're out in the backcountry, the, you know, the sun drops real quick, all of a sudden you get turned around, you shelter up for the night, you know or you have an idea of where you need to go the next day, you got to shelter in place and then kind of execute a self-rescue. So I like to kind of mirror it in a, in a somewhat of a realistic scenario, but there's a lot of skills that we go over and I just kind of slow it down where I pull and remove that kind of urgency and that rush out of there and say, all right, this is what we need to focus on. This is why we need to focus on it. And this is how you'll sustain maybe one night, maybe two nights, or maybe even three nights. So it's, it's good. We got some fresh snow coming on Friday. Let's so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm excited. So I'm like, that'll put a nice little, uh, layer of pot. I don't think we're getting much, but just enough to, uh, fill in some of the, uh, the holes that are out there. But, um, yeah, so it'll be a good little, good little experience for folks. And, you know, I, I have a couple spots available for my uh, December class as well as sort as my, uh, January class. So yeah, you can go to, Go to my website, Paleo Tracks or Raleigh. You can check it out there. There's, there's plenty of opportunities. So it'd be good to yeah, have awesome, dude. I, it's, uh, it's top of the line stuff. I know just knowing you and knowing your work that, uh, that you take care of it and you put a lot of effort into that, which is, but it, it means a lot, right? There's, there's like anything um, in life, there's people that are going to put the extra work in and make sure that it's a, a really thorough and well done class. And I know you approach while it is survival and it is a little bit more off the cuff sometimes, I know that you approach it with a lot of serious uh, research and, and things of that nature. So I can appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, the best part is as soon as we're done with the class, I'm jumping in my truck and I'm heading down to uh, like the Southern deserts and like Terlingua and I'm going to go pack rafting. <laughs> I need to like defrost myself. So I need to get some rafting in. So I'm like, uh, I'm grabbing the dog. We're going to take off. Gonna go hang in Big Ben for a little while, so be a good time. Nice. And yeah. you're gonna get some rocks down there too, right? Yeah. Anytime, uh, it's like it's my drug personally. Anytime I go anywhere, I'm always, you know, I'm finding big masses of stone that I can nap into different things. It's, you know, it's part of it. That's the that's the other exciting thing about flint napping is, you know, you know, for me, I'm not one to really buy stones. I'll trade stones out with folks, but. Um, I, I enjoy the treasure hunt of finding the right flint napping stones, whether it's obsidians or chertz or flints, you name it. That's part of my my joy, and it goes into a lot of research, a lot of kind of understanding the rules and regs where you're at, knocking on doors, saying, hey, yeah. I know you're next to this river, here's an arrow point. Do you mind if I check out your land? And <laughs> So, yeah, it gets a little hairy at times, depending where you go. But You do a little bribe in between. I do. Yeah, I do. I'll, I'll always go down with at least seven or eight different points or kind of like spearheads and I'll show them this is kind of what's around their area. Um, and I'll offer it to them if in exchange for, you know, kind of a little bit of access to land or even just a survey of their land. But yeah, every once in a while they kind of realize that it could be a value and then they want to charge some money. And so there's a little bit of negotiating going on, but it's always an adventure. I feel like uh, Indiana Jones when I'm down there, you know, just <laughs> trying to figure it all out, but it's a good time. 
Yeah, maybe I'll be, come check out my backyard. Oh, wait, yeah. I have a backyard. That's right. I live in a camper, but that's all right. Um, when I get a backyard, you're the first person I'm calling. We're doing some right. prospecting. Yeah, Colorado's not bad for it. I mean, we've got some good good stone along the front side. we got some of the southern areas. So there's there's some little pockets, you know. You yeah, I'm sure up. a guy with uh, your experience knows where to find it. Yeah, got to. Otherwise, you got no stones. Uh, so. so one other thing I wanted to ask you about, this is totally a, uh, a selfish question because I'm interested. Tell me about the thought process behind going and getting Finn. How has uh, Finn changed uh the way that you look at the outdoors and is there anything that you would say to someone that's been like considering getting a dog what are the trade-offs so i i got finn he was a rescue um i was just looking online and i've had rescue dogs before and a couple of years ago my big white mountain dog bob he uh he died so um all right bob yeah, he it was heartbroken. I, I've got his ashes. I won't I'll get all emotional, but he was my dog, you know. Um, so I've been wanting a dog for a really long time. And, you know, just with my life kind of changing, I was just waiting for the right time. And the summer was the right time. So I just looked at some rescue sites. And there was this, you know, dog sitting there. They picked him up the day before. They picked him up eating roadkill. So I was like, huh, we have some things in common already. I, I dig that. Um yeah, and uh, yeah, we just kind of bonded ever since. He gets really, uh, you know, along well with my two boys, but uh, he's very much an outside dog, um, and <clears throat> that works for me because that's where he likes to be. He likes to be running around. He likes to be free, and he's very loyal to me. Now, the thing that I never really had to consider too much was, um, you know, feeding something else. So now with Finn there, as he'll be one year in January. There's a whole other mouth to feed, and that dog can eat a lot. So <laughs> if I pull out a couple trout, he wants at least one, maybe two of those, or he'll just keep eating. But he's um he's a what he is, he gives me a level of comfort in certain ways and companionship. And uh, you know, I appreciate that. Even at my place, um, you know, I don't own a bed. I've always slept on the ground. So him and I are like bonded on the ground very easily. So we're always kind of connected. We're always kind of together. But the thing with having a dog out in the mountains is it's uh, it's almost like having a small child. You know, he's um, twisted his paw or his ankle a few times just running. And that's a whole other thing you have to consider if you're staying out long term. You know what I mean? Or you're staying out for even a single night. Um, so the communication is kind of like how we communicate is me really just kind of checking his body language. And he can also kind of check my body language. Um, probably about three weeks into having him, we were way out in Alma, uh, way out. I think it was uh, Wheeler Lake. We went up there. We were, this was, yeah, this was like August. Marmot season was going. And I wanted to bring him out for a hunt and see how he would do. But we went up. We did our thing. And as we were walking down, this big female moose jumped out right in front of me. What? Jumped right in front of me. And like started growling and really kind of getting aggressive and kind of drove her off. And I was like, this is like my dog. He's like totally, and I, I pulled out my phone the last few seconds and recorded, I actually put it on Instagram, but. <laughs> that sounds insane. He just knew what to do. So I think there's just a bond that we have. And um, it's a factor. Now my biggest concern these days is really just with the wolf population now coming into play. Mm. The thing kind of has some natural colorings and, um, I'm just worried that maybe 
he'll be kind of in front of me, maybe a hundred yards doing his thing. And there might be somebody out there. It gets a little scared and maybe, you know, squeezes off around or something like that. Fortunately, I try to avoid as many people as possible, but you know, there's adventurers out there just like yourself and they just go. So that's kind of my concern, just a mistaken identity. But um, yeah, he gives me peace. He gives me comfort. He's, he's real relaxed. I mean, he loves sleeping on, deer hides they'll sleep in the caves any shelter i build it's always got to build it a little bit bigger now so <laughs> yeah it's 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 a good thing but you got a warm body next to you now that's a that's a good yeah I, I definitely do you know and it's you know i guess it's a little different than like having like a girlfriend or something but <laughs> i'll definitely uh I'll, he's definitely my uh he's my guy for sure but you know he's just he really goes everywhere with me he wakes my kids up in the morning when I have them. He jumps on the beds, kind of does his thing. But, yeah, he's definitely uh, – he's my partner in crime. What's the longest you guys have stayed out together? So, Finn and I, we started off with single days. Um, and that was really just his ability. And, ironically, I, I brought a tent because I needed to see how he was going to respond to the sounds, coyotes, owls, all sorts of stuff. And once – it really didn't bother him too much – we dropped the tent and then we went into one of my caves that was for about two days. And then maybe right before kind of fall hit, we did like, I think it was seven days where we were just out and about roaming around, staying together. And um, yeah, he was, he was happy as anything. It was just, he likes to see where I'm at and I'm like, to, I like to see where he's at. So he'll never run so far where I can't see him. He'll always kind of run, look at you and then kind of go over here and, He's 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 definitely coming along. I think um, this trip down south will be a unique one because it'll be a little bit warmer, a little bit different terrain. But um, this uh, this fall, right when the you know the snow starts to kind of fold back up, we're gonna head out for about 15 days, 20 days, and we're gonna go out and really see uh, kind of what we can do. Once some of the lakes start opening up and we can pull some fish out and uh, things start kind of going in bloom, we'll we'll be ready to rock and roll. So it's yeah, easy. That he needs a training process too. You know what I mean? He's, sure. he's, I don't, I don't really know his background. So before I just throw him out there and say, we're going out for the next week, um, I got to see how he's going to do. And that's really kind of what my, 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 my idea has been just bring him slowly into, you know, my lifestyle. And, and then I got to adjust around him. That's awesome, man. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the companionship's a big one. Like on solos out there, it, you don't know how quiet it is until you've been out there, man. It can get yeah. it can get quiet after a couple of days, and and you start you start getting those feelings. So, I think yeah. it's a, a really cool thing to have a little soulmate next to you, just watching your back as well as you yeah. watching his back. There's something something to that. Yeah, he's 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 got my back. I got his, which I'm we we definitely bonded. So it's been a good good journey so far. Awesome, man. That's awesome. Yeah. So what's the uh, what's the main food source? Let's let's say that we're talking both now and also into the spring, summer months. Um, I haven't done too many trips here in Colorado in terms of long stays, so I'm curious sure. what what your appetite is uh, or your diet is consisted of mostly. Yeah. When you're out. Yeah. So I kind of live by the principle: you should fish first. It's it's one of the most nutritious. And I don't want to say the easiest things, but it's it's the more variety of things. You can walk to a lake or a pond and see hundreds of trout in there. And now it's just up for you to get creative and get them. Um, that also goes in line with you know, wherever you're roaming, whatever, you know, wherever you're at, playing within the state regulations as far as what Definitely. things you can 
So um, for me, once, you know, the waterways start opening up and the pools kind of start filling from the snow melt, uh, I'm, a, I'm a fish first guy. It's just, that's, that's routine. And that's kind of one of the things that I look for is finding those spots where I can gain access. Because I know there's trout in a lot of those places and they're super hungry. And as soon as the melt starts taking place and they get a little bit of exposure, they'll be hanging right around those little eddies and they'll pull stuff out. And then you, you can hand fish them, hand line them, spear them, whatever the case may be. But uh, yeah, so I usually go fish first. And then if it comes down to greens, um, really whatever's whatever's blowing out there, whether it's burdocks, um, that's always a huge one. You got a nice tuber. These things clearly progress as the spring here. And anyone in Colorado knows we have multiple springs. We have like our 6,000 foot spring, our 8.5 spring, and then we got like our 12 to 14 spring. So we kind of get the luxury of playing in that, those different zones on the springs. And um, yeah, so it comes down to just really identifying what food sources are readily available. Well, there's lots of nettles, there's burdocks, um, whether you find purslane out there, the berries are always one of the biggest ones for me. And then once mushroom season starts folding in and around, that's another opportunity. But, you know, just like everywhere you go, uh, you kind of have to play within the state regs. So really until August, and August is marmot season, um, I, don't do, I don't do any hunting. I don't do any trapping until that August window opens up. And I like going after marmot. They're, they're great to eat. And uh, they're also the perfect thoracic cavity size of a lot of mule deer and elk. So it's just good target acquisition. It's good practice. You kind of hone in on a smaller target and then uh, – yeah, start start munching away on those. But, you know, I'm not opposed to really finding whatever I can eat to eat. And then um, I also bring supplementals at time. I think uh, uh, that's also important. And the supplementals I typically bring, I like to bring uh, some rock salt. That's always a good. Huge one. Yeah, it's a huge thing to take. One, I've, uh, I've gotten into more this year doing a lot more air drying of fish and salting of fish. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's just turning into, I did, I did a YouTube video not too long ago on it where I just went out and caught a bunch of, uh, you know, cutthroats and cut bows and then, um, you know, butterflied them out, salted them, and then I air dried them for about 36 hours. And it's, yeah, it's a great, I mean, as I think, and I come to these just beautiful holes full of fish, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I can, I can eat them, but like, what's the best way of preserving them for me, especially in the upper elevations, you know, or because we have no humidity here. So you get a good, cool breeze with some salt thrown on it. Those things are drying out just like that. So, um, yeah, you know, fish first, gather the greens, whatever it is, however it is. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of my food option. What do, you, what do you typically like to do? I mean, do you bring a lot of supplemental stuff with you? Or I try not to bring any. Uh, I am also a fish first guy. It's just yeah. kind of my nature uh, since I was a little kid. Uh, I love hand fishing. Obviously, that one... Uh, like you said, maybe more than most things you have to really study your regs on because people are very seriously against hand fishing for certain species, which I understand. Um, but so just like you were talking about earlier, when you can get rid of gear, nothing makes me more excited than that. And when I'm in the water swimming deep in a hole, I can pull out a fish with my hands. Um, yeah. And I'm always trying to be respectful. Some days it's pretty easy to pull them out with my hands. So I try to make sure I only take what I need. Um, sure. And yeah, I, I think that's such a raw experience that I think I'd pick that over anything else. Um, I would probably pick spearing next. Uh, and then I will do hand lines if, uh, if the time allots for it. 
a lot of times, especially if I'm doing like natural cordage hand lines, it's a little yeah. bit more dedicated and takes a little bit more time. Yeah. So it kind of depends. I think food I usually associate with what is my mission. So if, if I'm trying to do a lot of mileage, you have to be yeah. really conscious about what your food's going to be. Maybe you want rations and that. If you're going to be staying in one spot out by a little river and you can just pull fish out, you probably yeah. don't need as much food. And in those situations, it's awesome because you really get to study the flora and the fauna around you and sure. you can eat them together, right? So so you can have really good greens, you can have meat, and you can kind of supplement them with each other. I think yeah. that's a, a really cool thing about being more situated in one spot. Yeah. Yeah, I call it, so I have a couple breakdowns in, in my book where I call them the stay and play, where yeah. it's kind of, I go to one spot, I'm staying here, and I might float around, but I'm going to play here for the next couple days. Yeah, it, yeah. It, or there's there's a walkthrough where somebody will drop me off on, you know, maybe the other side of the mountains, and I'll walk home. And I know my yeah. objective, just walk home. So, like you said, those things kind of situations, and they, they dictate kind of your, your, your process and your methodologies, but I think one of my favorite things, you know, when I teach a class out here is exposing people to the variety of food that we have out here, because a lot of people think there's nothing out here. I'm like, you'd be surprised the stuff that grows along these streams and these rivers, there's so much stuff. And then when they find just this huge bed of like sorrel and they're like, this is the best stuff ever. And I'm like, well, let's, let's go stuff them in there. And yeah, man, it's, it's a blast. It's an absolute blast. Yeah, dude, you fish, you get some uh, fish. I saw your ash cake video. You get the fish, oh. do some swirl in the ash cakes, put those on your wire stick. You're eating nice, man. He's so creative. It's, but then, you know, much probably like yourself, I'm okay not eating for a day or two. You know what I mean? And I think that's one of those ground truths, like we spoke of earlier, that once you understand your, how your body works, um, you're like, God, I don't, I'm not even hungry. I don't need to eat. Water is kind of one of those continuous things, but maybe a big belly full of water in the morning and a big belly full in the evening. And you're like, I feel, I feel pretty good. You know, I don't, I don't need to eat anything. You know, it's, it's mentality. And just kind of, I really say one of the hardest things for people to do is really kind of discover how their body reacts and responds yeah. to those extremes. Cause we have the luxuries of getting anything and everything we want. So yeah, that's that process. Yeah, definitely. It's like the, the first night where you have a nap for dinner, you're like, <laughs> you're like, all right, I get it now. I understand what they're saying. But I, I think after you have a couple of those experiences, then then you stop worrying about them. They don't become such a big deal. It's just yeah. kind of part of the kind of part of the play, right? The stay in play. That's kind of part of the play. Sometimes you don't you don't yeah, have that much food. That's so, it. It's a good time. Yeah. I, I think sometimes it's good for me too. Like you were saying, it's, I, I have, you know, when you're, when you're back home, you just like grab things mindlessly. It, it's the same with, um, same with using moonlight when you're out, uh, yeah. like the, the advantages you get with moonlight that you just flip on the light switch at home and it's not a big deal. But when you're out and about and you've been out there and the moon starts to get really bright and you're like, Oh, I can work deep into the night because I can see it's like those, those little things that you take for granted. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's, it's, that's the beauty of it is just kind of understanding how the world works, how nature works in conjunction with yourself and saying, I can walk for another five miles because I got full loom out tonight. The stars are going to be bright. I'm going to be golden. I, I always say to a lot of folks, they, you know, they don't give me the breeze, but sometimes it's like, you should build a shelter. And it's like, I'm okay sleeping on the ground. Maybe I'll put some leaves and grass down, but 
I look for a rock or I look for a log and I'll just lay right next to it. And I just know that wind's going to blow right over the top of me all night. And it's going to give me one, a snuggle buddy, so to speak, but it's just giving me a level of comfort where it's going to block some wind and it's going to give me some warmth and I'm comfortable and I'm good. Maybe I'm walking, I'm waking up at, you know, first light and I'm walking continuously on. I'm not going to spend the entire day building this elaborate shelter for six hours of sleep to, yeah. So I think for me, I always kind of like to say, you know, along with yourself, kind of like, what's that mission? What's that objective? And just being on the cuff, flying, you know, enjoying what it is and how it presents itself. Yeah. I think, I think, yeah, that's another one to think about. So like food, you definitely adjust your mindset depending on the mission and shelter too. I'm the same way. If, if there's a shelter there, I'm a duff bed guy because I yeah. really, I really like to get something between me and the ground. Absolutely. So I'm a duff bed guy, but I mean, the amount of times I build a roof over my head is few and on between, right? Unless I'm going to be there for a long time. I'm usually trying to put minimal effort at the end of the day into something that's comfortable. And then I'm going to try and bounce out at first light and yeah. have myself a good day. Yeah. That's again, ground truth at its, at its finest. You know, you'll be totally fine no matter what comes through that night, sleeping on a pile of duff, sleeping in some grass or some leaves next to a log, next to a rock, I'll be fine. And I'll have a great yeah. night. You know why? Because you didn't spend eight hours building just this <laughs> traction of what is it? You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. If you're going to play and you're going to establish a camp and hunt from it by all means, but you're walking through no need, no need. Yeah, for sure. And you, you don't realize until it's really until you get the structure up and you haven't really insulated any walls when you're shelter building and you're like, holy, this is a huge project. <laughs> you're like, this yeah. is going to take so much effort and I really don't need it. Yeah. Oh, I don't so, know. That's... You're uh, you're one on the loan though. That was a, yep. that was a balling house. I, that... I like that one a lot. Yep. I had one clear objective when I was to get there. I was to build my home. I wasn't building a shelter. I was building my home because that's where yep. I was going to live. And um, how I really kind of like the options and the choices that I made were pretty simple. I didn't want to be close to the water. It's just colder temps. So I could eliminate that right off the bat. And I wanted to put myself in an area that had a lot of resources. So like for me, I'd rather sleep on a little bit of a downhill or tweak something out or put a little extra effort in and make ground flat than have to walk a click to get the resources that I need because it's a great view, which doesn't seem like the most logical choice. But yeah, my idea was to just build my home and I used everything that the land provided, all of that uh, tundra and that, that, that huge layering of just kind of earth. I'd cut it up, roll it up into carpet sheets and throw yeah. it on top. And I, I took that idea from uh, the Lutzke, the Dene people that were up there. That's that's how they traditionally built theirs. So for me, it was like, I'm not going to, you know, try to reinvent the wheel. They've been using something that works and it's worked and worked and worked and worked. Right, yeah. It's the same thing. And, you know, I think my biggest moment, my biggest thrill on that entire show was after I had left, uh, one of the producers came back and said, one of the locals saw your shelter and they want to keep it up because the guy that saw it said it reminded him of what him and his grandfather would hunt in and they want to keep it up. I'm like, I just won the hands down. That is the biggest, like, like, <laughs> I was like God, man, I, I was in tears. I was just like, that's the best, man. Yeah, absolutely. I just won all that. Nothing, but I'm like, that is my biggest reward right there. So, yeah, I mean, no. built my home. That was, that was my, uh, that was my objective to, 
not just use a tarp and like shiver for you know so many days. <laughs> yeah. Build home, because with just like you know you're in a home, you feel safety, you feel security, you feel comfort, you feel so many great things when you have that little like you know that little house wrapping you around. And that was my goal. I gave myself in my mind. I was like, all right, this might take like two weeks when when you're out there, maybe like ten days. And then uh, once I got where I was, I was like, all right, this you got to get your home up because then. Once you get the home up, uh, my goal was not to sit there and, you know, you know, make spoons and crafts and stuff. It was to hunt, build my home and then hunt. That was, yeah. that was the game. And, you know, ironically, uh, someone prior to me going out there kind of gave me advice and they were like, hey, the name of the game is just starve better. Whoever can starve better will wind up walking away. And I was like, all right, that just whoop, totally just managed my own expectations and build my home, start hunting. That was yeah. it. That's such a, such a piece of, uh, piece of something to take home with you when, when somebody that's originally from that culture, indigenous people are telling you that you lived up to their standards, you, you <laughs> replicated something. And, and such a testament to you because you actually studied it and executed on it. You didn't do it by accident. You knew that was the way they did it and you executed it so well that they said that. That's a, that's a great story, man. That's awesome. Right there. Biggest that's one. Awesome. Hands down. That gives me goosebumps a little bit. Like, that's <laughs> awesome, man. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, things didn't turn out the way you expected. And, and and I think that situation was scarier than a lot of people realize because, so, you had the muskrat thing. Obviously, they can carry their own diseases and, and problems that come along with eating rodents. Everyone knows there's certain risks there. But you had an added layer of risk because of the heart issues that you had been through. So t talk yeah. us through this. Where's your headset yeah. at? You're in alone, and you start yeah. feeling pains. Yeah. How do you proceed? It was an intense time. So what I actually had was a, a form of dysentery. If anyone's, I've had dysentery a couple times. I had it once in Korea. I had it in the Middle East, and it was it's not fun. Um, so I caught some form of dysentery and it really couldn't be concluded that it was the muskrat or if it was maybe eating some berries off the ground, maybe something defecated on it or urinated on it. Um, and every one of us were just, you know, handfuls of crowberries and, and mountain cranberries were everywhere. So probably I would say I had some symptoms and issues prior to the muskrat. And I believe once I ate the muskrat, I, I kind of call this my own personal theory. My body went into like a food shock. So you've been out in the bush for many days. You all of a sudden, you go eat something. You're like, oh, I got to throw it up or it's coming out different ends. So I ate that muskrat and I think it was the, the, the proteins, the fats, all that stuff that was in it really just <clears throat> kicked my dysentery into this whirlwind. And then pretty much for the next, I think, four days, nothing stayed in my body. And... Um, and having, you know, a heart attack earlier on in, in, when I was 37, one of the things my doctor said, and she was like totally fine with me wandering the mountains, but she's like, you have to stay hydrated. Your blood will thicken. And if your blood thickens, you're running into problems. I'm like, all right, yeah. water, 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 water. But um, yeah, so right around probably, I think it was day seven, I was like, all right, you're getting to a bad place. You need to, and I was looking um, which wasn't really, it wasn't shown because there's, you know, a lot of footage that's collected, but I was looking for yarrow for three, yeah. I, for three days I spent walking 
and I was on an island. I spent walking the coastal. I just did this back and forth, back and forth. And that, most people know what Yara looks like. And I was like, th- starting to think to myself, do I not know what this looks like? Am I identifying <laughs> wrong? What, and then my mind started to play games with me. Like, you know what this is. You've taught plenty of classes on it. You've used it. You know what it is. I couldn't find it. And then um, I transitioned to Labrador tea, which was another green that was out there. It's a great tea. You can use it for a variety of things. I'm like, let's try that. And every time I would take something down, I would say within 10 minutes, it was coming right back up. So I started to get to that critical point where I know somebody who's, who's a guide out here who spends a lot of time outdoors. I was hitting that critical point of failure where my heart was no longer going to be able to function the right way. So, you know, day eight, I woke up, give it one last, you know, see if you can find something. I think I probably made it maybe like 40, 50 feet away from where my, uh, where my house was. And uh, I was like, you're, you're going downhill, man. And like, you kind of start feeling yourself slowly collapsing. And where I could really tell was that my feet and my hands weren't working. Like things were slowly moving to like my vitals. And uh, I was like, all right, you got to make the call. Don't be an idiot. You've got a lot of factors at home. And then I called up and uh, yeah, it broke my heart to do it. But I called up and said, yeah, I need some help. I'm, uh, I got a tap, man. I can't, I can't keep anything down. And, you know, I was taking my, my heart meds. One of the things that you can do if you're on any medications, you can't take them. So I was literally grinding these things up, putting them in water, thinking, all right, at least maybe if I can get some of them in there. But I couldn't, couldn't keep anything down. So that was a, it was a huge, it was a huge upset for me personally. Cause like, uh, it wasn't so much about winning, but for me, I love adventuring. I love yeah. just that challenge of saying, all right, so maybe you last three days, maybe you last 20, maybe you last 120. But for me to have the opportunity and probably one of the safest places, what do I mean by safe is like, there's an entire crew of safety people there. And in cases like me or like the other contestants that tap out, I'm like, this is the safest adventure you can possibly be on where you're alone and you can just have fun. So I was bummed that it was just cut short for me, but uh, yeah, I had a blast, man. I mean, I would never say anything negative about the experience. I don't think you could like, I just, I mean, it brings me to a smile thinking about just sitting out there, you know, watching the auroras and then throwing up and then watching the aurora. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was definitely yeah, you could hear wolves howling, and you're like, "Are they gonna come?" I hope so. You know, just, just you can't, you can't beat it. I mean, you can't beat that at all. So, yeah, it was a good adventure. It was a That's short one. My books. <laughs> yeah, you got a, you got a good perspective on it because I know people come back. You know, like, ah, I wish I could have done better. I wish this didn't happen. I wish they give me a better spot. I wish, you know, there, there, there's so many people that approach it like that after the show, and I think. I think the the way you approach it's great. It's just like, hey, that was a great experience. Things didn't go as planned. They never do, but that was a great experience, and it is what it is. Yeah. One uh, one question I did get, which yeah. I thought was interesting. I put this on that little box. Yeah. And they said, Donnie, what would you have done with the cash if you would have won the show? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So. I was going to do two things with it. Um, one, I was going to go back up there and I was going to take some of that money and try to help reestablish because we got an opportunity to kind of interact with a lot of the, um, the Lutzke of the Dene Nation up there. And uh, I got to talk to some of the kids. I got to talk to some of the elders. So what I wanted to do was take some of that money, go back up there, 
and just try to help them with some of their own issues and problems. Because we got to go there and play a game. Right. And, and I don't want to say it's disrespectful in any way, but there needs to be a level of like, there needs to be a little bit more kind of like, you know, we came here and we, we did a challenge. So how I can repay you is one by respecting your land, but then also giving you some of the stuff that I earned from this. Yeah. Um, so definitely would have went up there. Uh, and it, whether it was building a new community center or whatever the case may be, that's what I would have done. And then I would have taken some of the money here and I would have, uh, I would have purchased some land. Not really sure, uh, you know, where I was. I was always on like landwatch.com trying to figure out where I could snag 50 acres. But one of my uh, personal goals in life is to own some land. And that's uh, a place for my family to go to, just to have that place where they can kind of commune with the outside and then kind of just keep it safe. And then, you know, family and friends that are like, hey, I just need an escape. I got 50 acres, go out there and just, just connect, do your own thing. Um, so that was kind of, kind of really giving back to the land in both kind of respects. Um, and I, you know, my wife at the time probably would have said, well, we got to do this and do this and do this. And she probably would have won that battle, but, uh, (laughs) in the, in the grand scheme, I think it's about, uh, I think it's about giving back and giving some exposure to, you know, the people that are up there as well as kind of, you know, preserving some of the, the lands that we take for granted down here and really just kind of keeping them safe. Yeah, it's awesome, man. It's an easy yeah. thing to, you know what I mean. You get to walk away with a great adventure, and it it wasn't like I nobody needs that money, but it's not something that's going to make my life, you know, that much better. It's just a dollar value. So how can I impact other people so then they can get something from my my own experiences, my own adventure? So, you know, it's awesome. Yeah, man. yeah, I think you inspire a lot of people with that, and and yeah. I think ultimately you've done a lot of things since then that have continued to inspire people in that way. It is a lot, uh, a lot about respect, right? There's a lot of respect that's owed to people that have come before us, and a lot of people that have kind of got trampled on in the passage, right? So I think that's cool that you had the foresight to say, hey the dollars might be mine, but they need to be allocated properly and there needs to be an amount of respect distributed absolutely. throughout the community. Yeah, absolutely. I think before going out there, I had a chance to speak with the, the chief of Lutzke that are up there and I made one of their traditional stone um, stone points. I made a nice little tanned out uh, buckskin pouch. I kind of pulled them off to the side and I said, you know, I, I we, we all did like a tobacco ceremony but uh, I said, you know, I want to give this to you. And this is just me showing my appreciation for letting me personally and everyone else that's out here getting to go on your, you know, your sovereign land, your ancestral land and experience life in a whole new form. So I gave it to him and we kind of kind of hugged. We exchanged some words. But I think right then and there, you know, that kind of interaction kind of just for me was like, OK, this is very much real and you are going on here to, you know, go on adventure and play games, so to speak. But for these people, this has been their life and we need to respect that. We need to acknowledge that we need to honor that. And it just really managed my own, my own, you know, expectations out there and just how I was going to approach this game. It wasn't going to be a battle. It was going to be, you know, me versus the land. It was going to be a relationship. The relationships have trouble spots. They have ups and downs but it's how you communicate in that relationship that will allow it to totally move forward. So that was my, my kind of my mindset for the most part, which worked well when I went on the other show, Alone the Beast. <laughs> you know, that was another, you know, adventure all in itself. So 
Good times for sure. So how that work? Did they hit you up and they're like, hey, Donnie, you're a beast. We know things <laughs> got cut short, but we want yeah. to invite you back. Was that like? Yeah, so there, there's, you know, some conversa uh, conversations back and forth. Um, I think originally what they were looking to do for a couple of the episodes, they were looking to bring a couple uh, previous alone members on maybe one or two of the episodes, and then some things changed. Um, I don't know the full behind the pictures, but they were like, we want you to go. Um, would you be willing to go? And I was like, absolutely. You want me to go on another adventure? Sounds good. So, yeah, they're like, here's the deal. You're going to go live in a swamp. You're going to be given one dead animal, and you are going to get no tools. And I was like, yes. <laughs> but I'm, this, no. is what, um, this is my world. And I, for someone who works stone, there was zero stones in a swamp. And None. zero. I spent hours. I called up archaeologists and friends along the East Coast. What do we know about stone? And I, I came across one guy that said there was an ancient um ancient vein of quartz that runs through the south and he goes you might be able to find it and i'm like there's i walked through that swamp i was like there's no way i'm going to be able to find this but uh yeah that was all that was all just traditional skills like cutting a hand drill set with a oyster shell that i found crammed up underneath uh, a tree because that's where a raccoon hit it the day before or two days before um i i enjoyed that very much so because there was no you know I'll, I'll put it to you like this you know between the two shows um alone you get 10 of your problems answered fire warmth hunting cordage knives and for me those are typically the things you would prioritize saying i need to create these things right in an environment but those problems are solved and you got another set of problems the the isolation the cold things like that for alone the beast you had no tools, but you were with two other people and you were given one beast. Well, for me, that beast was my my Home Depot, so to speak. I mean, the, the cutters on it, we used that to open up possums. Um, the rawhide from it used to make lashings for atlatl darts and four shafts. I mean, everything came from the land and came from that animal. And uh, yeah, my myself and this guy, Sean, we were the last two on there. And we, we literally... We thrived to the point where we were collecting oyster mushrooms and greens. We were smoking food. We were smoking mushrooms, being like, "Well, if we get rain, we don't have to go out." We had baskets. We had we had so much stuff. Where at a certain point, we were just, I remember we were sitting on this log, kind of being like, "Huh, we, we got to We're doing okay, you know. We were we were we were putting calories in our body. We would go out and we catch crawfish. We I took a, I took a possum with an atlatl dart and then finished it off with a club. And I mean, we just we went out there and lived. And the reason why I feel like that was so much more successful because that stuff wasn't there. Like I got, a, I got 50 feet of cordage or I've got, you know, four knives. It was just whatever you have, you got to make it work. So it, it just eliminates so much just mind games. So yeah, yeah it, was a, awesome. it was a good adventure. Yeah. I love that one. I think I think uh, one thing you start to realize in your brain when you go out there is how real the hierarchy of needs is. So it's yeah. like you go out there day one, food is the biggest deal ever. So you're like, I, I need food. All I can think about right now is food. Then you get food, and then instantly you're like, why am I so lonely? Like I, I wasn't lonely yesterday when I was looking for food. Now instantly I miss everyone I've ever met. My second grade teacher is like, <laughs> It's like instantly your brain starts playing these tricks where you satisfy one need and the next one 
is there instantly. And yeah. I think until you until you realize uh, that that's your brain playing tricks on you, you might get caught off guard out there. It's, it's yeah. an interesting thing. The mind will play those games. I mean, you've experienced it. We've all, we've all seen it and experienced it where it's just like, what am I thinking? What am I doing? I should be doing this, but this is ruling. And, you know, I think, uh, again, it goes to that kind of ground truth. I think it's acknowledging that's happening and saying, all right, don't let this take over. Let it be a factor, but what do we need to accomplish? What do we need to do? And, um, you know, for Alone the Beast, one of the things we experienced the first night, you're thinking a swamp, it's going to be, it was October time frame. It's going to be warm during the days, and it got cold, cold at night. So the first mm. night around that fire, <laughs> next day, shelter was going up because I'm like, we need to create something where we can all get inside, build a small fire, and we can all stay warm. And the shelter we built was, you know, it rained a couple nights. We had walls that thick, and it was just, it was bomber. It was huge, man. It was, it was, my mentality was, again, build a home because that's where you feel the safest sleeping on big piles of Spanish moss, covered up with Spanish moss, making just everything we could possibly imagine came from the environment. So I, for me, I, I, would, I would get excited and wake up each day and be like, all right, what are we going to do today? We got, we've got meat drying, we've got mushrooms drying, we've got greens in the field over here. Let's, let's work on our fish traps and let's get some more crawfish. And then uh, I'm going to make some uh, throwing sticks. Let's do some back. We just... Once we really kind of got those priorities out of the way, then it was that kind of creative thing, and you know, it was a good so time. For uh, swampland, what did you do? Basket traps or like WM traps in the in the shores? Yeah, so we were deep in a swamp, and then we were also in a flood area. So, uh -huh. some kind of flooding in different areas where we only had probably about twenty five yards of dry land, and then okay. caught in a tropical storm. And then as the water receded, it kind of opened up new areas. So it was kind of like, I, in my mind, I was like the, you know, the, uh, the Pacific crossing along the Bering Land Bridge, you know, because there's gators in all of the water. But like sometimes you would have to really go for a good haul to get from one spot to the other. But once things dried out, you kind of be like, all right, let's go explore over here. But yeah, you know, for, for fish traps, we just did basket traps. And uh, my approach was pretty simple. I said, let's build one to test waters, and then let's build a big one to fill up. So we had two traps always going in the water, and we were pulling out crawfish with them. And my trap was, you know, it was about yay big, maybe like three feet. And the idea was, like, we could move that one a lot more rapidly and really test the areas. Because you don't want to leave traps in the water for too long, right? you know, and nothing's coming about. So we also had the carcass of this, of this hog, so we could stick a okay. leg there as the bait and if something wasn't going in there the water was done and we just pick it up and move pick it up and move so once we found a good spot and we get some crawfish out we put the big trap which was maybe like five feet long drop that bad boy in there and we pulled out some crayfish so nice dude yeah that was good. yeah we were i mean yeah, i'm gonna be honest it's you know it's tv they, they show a certain amount but um the the guy sean and i uh we were, I mean, we were living pretty large. We, I mean, when the waters would come and the rain would come, it'd saturate all these, um, these oak trees. And then all of a sudden these oyster mushrooms would just go full bloom on them. And my mentality was, I'm like, all right, we know they're there. We're going to eat them. Right when they start to turn, we'll pull them off that natural refrigerator, if you will. And then we'll just smoke them all. And we built our our, uh, our fire so we could smoke, but then we also had a little fire going in our shelter the entire time. Mm. Uh, I was always putting out a little bit of smoke 
and I just kept the bugs away, just kept everything away. And it was, uh, yeah, it was awesome. We actually, one of the, the, a proud moment for me was when we got our fire going, we kept that same fire for 30 days. Hell yeah. Never let it go out. And I can tell you it was, it was difficult, you know, to craft a, you know, at first it was a bow drill set. They were hoping to see a bow drill on reverse wrapping cordage. In my mind, I'm like, it's pouring rain. I'm like, this is going to snap. And it snapped two or three times. And I'm like, I'm going to hand drill. And we got a hand drill, got a coal, got into flame. I'm like, now we have to keep alive. And that was, that was, it was awesome to see like that same fire burning for 30 days. It was just like, yeah, that's good stuff, man. That's a long fire, man. That's, that's a long time to keep something going. Yeah, it was. Did you ever have like that moment of anxiety where like you go out and check the traps? I, I know I've had this. So my first solo when I got friction fire, I made the fire and I was so scared to leave it. So I, I would go and I would fish or something and I would literally run back because I was like, oh, I went too long. My fire's yeah. going to get back and I'm going to have to make another one. I don't know. Did you guys have that like that anxiety in your head where you're like. We did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, somebody was always on the fire. And yeah. the one. I say it was probably around like maybe day 18, 17 or 18. One reason our fires were going out, they were losing a lot of heat and volume real quick. Yeah. And we could not figure out why. And I was like, why are, why is our wood, you know, why does it seem like our fire is just going out? And we weren't getting big coal beds. Well, come to find out, we built a fire outside and then we moved it. And what we found is when the, so the water table is really high. Mm -hmm. So when we built our fire on the ground, it would dry out a couple inches down just by that like thermal heat. Yeah. And then the fire would go out, it would act like a vacuum and suck water back up to the flames. So once we figured that out, we started to line all of our fire pits with clay. And we created basically a water barrier on the ground that we could build our fires on so when that little vacuum effect was taking place, it wasn't extinguishing our coals. Once we figured that out, we could walk away from our fire for at least an hour and know we'd come back to some smoldering embers. But when we, until we figured that out, there was always somebody sitting on the fire, feeding it wood. And that was the battle was trying to come up with dry wood and trying to come up with wood um, because our fire was eating it so much. So yeah, we, I mean, me personally, I learned a lot out there um, just from that environment. And it was, it was, it's fun because you get to solve those problems. Like, all right, why is our fire going out? Why is this happening? All right, how do we overcome this? Because, you know, there was no, there's no manuals written for that. And for me, I was like, this is exactly how I like it. Just like, all right, go. And you just go. <laughs> Figure it out, man. That's what it's about. That's what it's always about. It's always about just being creative and, and getting it done. Absolutely. All right, man. I got a couple questions I want to throw your way. These are from people uh, that hopefully are, are still listening, and I, I just want to throw them your way, get, get, uh, give people a chance to, to pick your brain a little bit. Um, so, the first one I thought was really cool from a guy, Mundo, down in Mexico. He's recommendations for young folks trying to make a living in bushcraft, wilderness skills, ancestral living. Any tips for a young person trying to make it a, a full-time gig? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, depending on, you, you know, your age, uh, once you, I would say kind of, we'll use 18 as that standard kind of, you know, you're an adult, so to speak. But um, I see you kind of go out on your own. Yeah. If you have some knowledge, skills, and abilities to kind of back it up. So you've spent a lot of time 
camping and hiking, you have a familiarity with the outdoors, that's a good opportunity to really see, kind of call it your internship, if you will, if not necessarily if you have what it takes, but identifying kind of really who you are and what you're going to be able to do and what you can provide, identifying your own deficiencies, eliminating your own self-deception. But what again, it's that ground truth, getting out there and actually doing it and you know, seeing how well you do, and then coming back and doing self-reflection and saying, you know what, I really struggled these past, you know, these three days, these other five days were great, but those three days I had problems with, you know, these two things yeah. that work on. And once you've built up that kind of that foundation and those good knowledge and skills and abilities, um, you just start reaching out to folks and say, hey, you know, this is what I have, this is what I've done. Can I work with you guys for a month? Can I work with you for a summer? And um, yeah kind of just put yourself slowly in that community. And I don't think having a speciality is, is a requirement to say you're a flint napper or you're an atlatl thrower or you're a potter, but um, just kind of being open and kind of ultimately really getting rid of the ego and just saying everyone has different offerings, really just kind of taking in those offerings. But yeah, get out there, experience it. Um, I'm a big fan of reading. I'm a, I'm a huge reader. So uh, understanding, you know, different ideas and concepts and things like that, but then actually applying it, I think a big thing. And then if you want to do it like all on your own, kind of like, you know, myself, um, number one thing, if you're going to bring clients out into the outdoors, uh, make sure you have all the legal requirements to do so. And then make sure you're insured. Um, yeah. Got to have guide insurance and it's not hard to get if you need help with that. Um, it was something that I do every year because I'm not going to put, myself at risk, or more importantly, any of the clients that I would bring out at risk. Um, that's just kind of called a good respect. Yeah. Um, figure out those uh, those legal requirements, and then just you got to get out there and do it. And that's that's where the ground truth comes from. It really does. What's the, the best book you could advise, um, you know, somebody trying to get into uh, the field, what, whether it's as an instructor or just interested as a hobby, what, what's the number one book you'd say, this is the one to start with? You know, that's that's hard because there's so many good books out there. Good ones. Yeah, you know, I would say don't get yourself a survival manual. What Agreed. I would give yourself a story about somebody who survives, mm. whether, you know, into the wild, whether any one of the mountaineers or, you know, any of the mountain men that came through here and listen to their story and take away points from that story, whether, you know, majority of them are true, but you take away and say, all right, what am I learning from this? And then what could I do or what could I have done different than this person to overcome this? Then you invest in maybe picking up some of those manuals to kind of pinpoint those ideas. But I like to think that there is no single book that gives it to you, but, you know, find some of those stories about people surviving historically all around the world and read those. Um, you know, if you're looking for just core skills, the old primitive skills uh, bulletins that used to come out, um, I, think, uh, I think Dave Westcott used to create those. There's a couple other yep. folks. They're no longer in circulation, but I think you can still find them at various places. Those are really, really great in uh, traditional skills. Now, from my own personal side, I personally say you should start with flint napping. Um, working stone tools, things to that extent, because that will shape. If you can craft a bow from an ads, I don't think I have. Let's see. If you can craft a bow using one of these and 
a bunch of these guys right here, there isn't anything you can't do. And it comes from working stone. So for me, it's all about, you know, working stone, working stone as kind of that core, um, core skill, if you will. I know it's not an exact answer to this book, but um, I like stories in general. And then those stories allow me to say, this person died because of this, or they could have done this different. Now I want to go see what skills could have worked well for that. Because we remember stories a lot more than we do a hard factual skill or something like that. We remember the stories that tie into um, kind of how to live and kind of overall how to survive. Awesome. No, I think that's a great answer. I think ultimately for me, it's been personal experiences more than books. Absolutely. I read a lot of books. I don't retain everything from them. But when I have a chance to hear from the horse's mouth and, and talk to one of the, you know, people who've been doing it for a long time. You mentioned Dave Westcott, guys like that who have been there, done that, and been in real serious situations um, and taught thousands of people. Those experiences, I remember almost word for word, right? It's Absolutely. like like in the back of your head, you know exactly what they said. You know if they were smiling, if it was sunny out. Like you remember those moments much more than reading, you know, line by line text about which woods to use for bow drill out of a manual. Yeah, I think that's kind of like the like an, an indigenous culture sort of approach. There's a story to everything, and that story yeah. translate into maybe a hard skill or something very specific. And I think that's kind of like my approach when it comes to, you know, people will say what books, and there's a lot of books that are out there, and I can't say that one is better than the other. They all provide different, you know, values. But understand the story and then how that story relates. And I know, like, I read Hatchet as a kid, and I think the one thing that stood out was Silas Day threw his hatchet at uh, something that was in his cave, and it sparked. Yeah. And he saw the spark, and then he was able to create fire. And, like, that still resonates in my mind as a kid reading it, like, holy cow, you can make fire that way. Then you go out and you explore what that specific thing is, and the world just opens up. Oh, yeah, that's a great example. Sure. All right. Another uh, another question from the folks back home. I really like this one because the creativity that we were talking about earlier. It says uh, this is from Sam. So shout out Sam. This is uh, his question. Does Louis Vuitton Don use any natural product on that head? <laughs> That's me. <laughs> Louis Vuitton. <laughs> yeah, I wish. Um, as far as like things that I've collected or things that, you know, people send me. Yeah. I mean, uh, if I'm out in the, out in the bush and I'm going to clean myself, I'll do a smoke bath. I'll, I'll bathe in smoke and some greens and stuff, or I'll just jump in a stream and clean myself off with, uh, you know, salts. Uh, the one thing I do have a tendency to put in my beard is a layer of deer fat. Mix oh, yeah. Um, variety of oils. I need to come out with a, with a beard oil one of these days. I don't know what I'd call it, but it'd be pretty awesome. <laughs> but uh, yeah, deer fat um, in the hair, I usually just, you know, I just clean it when I'm out there. I don't get too crazy. I, I try to stay clean. But um, if you're sitting by yourself, you know, you, you mind your own stink. You mind your own stink. That's just the way it is. But, yeah, I, I mean, I'm always dipping into rivers and streams half the time to explore what's what's in them, what's around them. And I count that uh, a rain shower. That's a free shower. Go outside, do your thing. You got to have a fire. Yeah, it all counts the same. Yeah, you got to have something to warm you up when it's all done. But yeah, that's true. That's a big one. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different stuff you can use, man, for the beard. And yeah. I, I know that there's a lot of a lot of guys that uh, I think Matt Burgess is he's making a, a natural beard oil now out of uh, 
beeswax and right some different resins and stuff like that. So people are creative, man. They're always yeah. always trying to figure out those problems from natural solutions. Yeah, I'm always I'm hesitant to put too much stuff in here because you're like, <laughs> <I'm> always, <laughs> and you got a lot too. That's a serious tinder bundle on the chin right there, man. Issue, man. It's not. Even, I came back from the alone the beast. My beard was yellow because there was all, I was always blowing into the fire. And it was like cypress wood. It gives off this gnarly odor and this really funky smoke. And I came back. It looked like I'd been smoking Marlboro Reds for like an <laughs> It was just, it was yellow the whole way through. I was like, oh, my God. It smelled right, but, yeah, no big deal. Love it, man. All yeah. right, this one's from, uh, this one's from Danny. He, he, this is another very creative one. I appreciate all the creative questions. We're going to have to keep this going on the next to the wild things are. So he says, Donnie. Yep. You out in the wild for six months. Okay. Over the horizon, you see a McDonald's and a Subway. Which one are you hitting first? Oh man. <laughs> um, I don't know. I would probably go Subway because they have pepperoncinos. Okay. Those little things. Oh my God, those are just delightful. I don't. I don't probably wouldn't do McDonald's, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go Subway on that one. Yeah, I think that's a fair choice. That's a fair choice. Yeah. Yeah, too. Uh, you got another one from Justin. He uh, he says for for both of you, what made you get into the survivalist thing as a hobby slash passion? So I'll, I'll let you kick that off. Yeah, so uh, I think I think for me, um, I kind of grew up in the era when you were outside all the time. Uh, yeah. and your I was being told to go inside. Um, yeah, so I was always outside fishing and just being a young kid, and I, I just found such a peace and such a connection with that, and it just progressed and continued to progress my entire life to the point where um, I don't think we should do things that don't make us happy, and I don't want to do those things, so I want to do what makes me happy, and uh, you know, for me, this is what I find most uh, fulfillment in, enjoyment in, interacting with people. And then more importantly, I have two sons, um, and I want them, if anything, to see me say, Dad is following his passions, so we're going to follow ours. And whatever they are, they can follow it. That's for you to choose. I was able to do that, and I didn't play by the rules. I didn't go to college right away. I did a lot of different things, but I found my own peace. So I think that's kind of that, uh, just that mentality of just, embracing what it is and not really having uh, too much of a plan for the most part. So, yeah, it's just kind of always been, you know, rock climbing and garden of the gods when there were no paved roads, um, hiking, you know, Chatfield Reservoir, which is a huge state park, never existed when I lived here. We would walk there as kids and go fishing, you know, hiking the Appalachian Trail and like spearing fit, just all these things. My family in Michigan, you know, they're outdoors and whether it was riding on sailboats or, you know, ice fishing, it was just always something that was. And I don't think I could do anything else that doesn't, you know, involve me freezing, getting cut, being attacked, getting blisters. If, if I can't do those things, I don't want to do them. I could not sit behind a desk, even though it's part of this in a way to sit behind and do some of these things. But it's finding that balance. So, yeah, man, it's just always been. You know what I mean? What about yourself? Yeah, I, I think a lot of a lot of similar thoughts there. I was barefoot creek kid. 
All I wanted to do was be barefoot, walk around in the woods. And even from a young age, four or five, I remember thinking, what does it take for me to sleep out here? I remember instantly, like, I had to get home when the streetlights came on kind of thing. But I always thought about, you know, if I make this wall right here and I make, like, a little house, I remember thinking as a little kid, can I sleep here? Will this be okay? And then, like, you know, as you progress and go through life, certain things come up and they kind of pulled me away. And even in high school, I, I remember always coming back, like always just wanting to build forts in the woods, be in the woods. I was always interested in plants. So I think for me, it's not about getting into the outdoors as a passion. Uh, the outdoors was my passion. The real question is, what did it take for you to start pursuing it, right? So my mission is not for, especially even for the show, it's not about being an outdoor wilderness guide or a survivalist or an ancestral skills teacher. The point of the show is to expose people that have turned priorities into passion. So it doesn't matter if it's necessarily, um, if it's outdoor guiding. We talked about this the other day. It could be surfing, it could be mountaineering. It doesn't matter whatever your priority is and, and, and taking your passions and, and making them something that you do on a regular basis. And I think that's the, that's the important thing, so. Yeah, I think people are really gonna resonate with that. I think, uh, I think there's a lot of people out there, some of the people I see scrolling up and down on, on the comment sections that they just kind of at a certain point say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do that. That makes me the best I am or the happiest, whether it's raising goats up in Montana or being a photographer or working, you know, on an airline, whatever it is that gives you peace and gives you passion. That's what you need to do. You're the ability to be creative too. That's the other piece of it. It's like so many of those things that we're told to do by our peers, they, they lack that creative, that creative component. So when you get the ability to, to get back into your creative side, you start ultimately feeling a lot more fulfilled, at least personally. Yeah. I tell a lot of folks, don't ever be afraid to sit at your own table. Yeah. Usually you want to circle up when we feel comfort in that, but I'm, a, I'm not afraid to sit at my own table and, and do my own thing. And in this kind of, you know, in this world, in this community, you're not sitting by yourself too often, but don't be afraid to do it. Step out of your own, your own kind of, you know, biases in your mind and just sit at your own table, eat your own lunch and you'll be all right. <laughs> yeah. I like that. That's a good one. Sit at your own table. Need to, need to write that one down. <laughs> all right. I gotta, gotta just a couple more for you. Yeah. Stacy, I, I think she's a big, TikTok follower, which it seems okay. like TikTok is uh, pretty pretty big for you these days. She says, what is your favorite tattoo? Oh, yeah. Um, so I really, I like the, uh, this one right here on my hand. Uh, okay. This one is called the uh, Crescent and uh, Broken Rod or Broken Arrow. And uh, so a lot of my family comes from Scotland and, you know, kind of those Nordic states as well as Germany. And um, this is found on a lot of uh, stone monoliths and stone structures out there. And the true meaning is unknown. Nobody knows exactly what it means. So I saw it a handful of times, uh, been to Scotland, and uh, it just kind of really resonated with me. And for me, I liked that it was unknown, and therefore I got to determine what it means to me. And um, I don't want to say there's one fixed meaning. Like, it means a lot of different things, everything from an unsuccessful hunt, the broken arrow, to sleeping under a moon, to the little, you know, squiggly lines, which represent different waterways and kind of paths of life. But I have, uh, you know, both of them on, on both my hands and I kind of designate one hand for one son and one hand for the other with their zodiac signs. But these guys right here just, 
I just like be able to, again, maybe sit at my own lunch table and determine what it means uh, to me. And um, it's just kind of a, a story of what it is to live a little bit more wild, to be a little bit more free and just, you know, experience life and truly embrace all that it has to offer. Because life is long, you know what I mean? Life is long. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, I, I'm appreciated this so much. I can't I'm say thank you enough for hopping on here for the first episode. Uh, it's just mad respect to you and everything you're about. All, all the people that you've inspired, countless numbers. And uh, I appreciate you getting on here with me. You, my friend, Donnie Dust, are absolutely wild. Uh, I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, let's do this again. Let's do another catch-up in a couple months. And We'll see. Uh, we'll see how the ski seasons went. We gotta. We gotta go hit the backcountry sometime soon. When I come Amen. back, uh, when I come back from the border, doing some pack rafting, we'll uh, we'll link up and we'll go play in the mountains for a couple of days. I'll bring Finn. All right, right, let's do it, man. That's gonna be awesome. I'm excited. Thank you. All right, guys. Until next time, stay wild.